You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And as our kids head to the back, everybody grab your copy of God's Word. Let's continue in our time of worship together by opening God's Word. We'll be in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 this morning. And the full text on which today's teaching is based is Colossians 1, verses 1 to 14. Verses 1 to 14. If you are willing and able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand because we really do believe this is the Word of God. He is speaking to us here and now. We stand to show our reverence and our readiness to hear from Him. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, today we are beginning a new series called... Preeminent. This is a word that comes from Colossians 1.18. Jesus Christ is the preeminent one, meaning he surpasses all others. See, whatever you're facing now and whatever you might face in the future, if you have Jesus, or more accurately, if Jesus has you, then you have everything you need. You have everything you need because He is indeed the preeminent one. He is supreme. He is sufficient. For the next several months, we'll unpack all that that means, the preeminence of Jesus. As we explore these letters, Colossians and Philemon, I hope you received an ESV scripture journal on your way into worship this morning. We gave out journals when we did the Luke series, The Once and Future King, uh, last Advent, and that seemed to be a big hit. 
So we're doing that again today. I hope you'll use that journal, bring it with you each week, and use it to follow along in this series, taking notes or sketching or writing down questions, whatever you do to remain engaged with the biblical text. But do remember to write your name in the front of the journal. We've got hundreds of these things that will be floating around for the next several months. You might leave yours sitting somewhere and someone might grab it, take it home accidentally. When I did the Luke series last year, I had the whole series sketched out in my journal and one of you took it home with you. (laughs) You did at least return it so the series could go on. Do write your name in the front of the journal. but Bring that with you each week as we go through this series together. Now, I've had a several-week break from preaching, so I'm just itching, ready to go. So we're going to jump right into the text today. You ready? Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. This first passage, we can break it down into three main parts. Very simple to follow. We're going to see the letter introduction. Then, second, we'll see the Colossians' reputation. We'll learn a little bit about what these believers were most known for. And of course, that will cause us to ask the question, what are we most known for? What am I most known for? And then third, we'll see Paul's intercession, his prayer for these early Christians. And what Paul prays is what God desires for all of his people. So that prayer will be applicable for us as well. So the letter introduction, the Colossians' reputation, and Paul's intercession, his prayer. That's where this text will carry us. Let's get started. First, the letter introduction, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Like all ancient letters, really, this letter to the Colossians follows a well-known pattern. Here's the author, here are the recipients, and then a brief greeting. Two people are named in verse 1, Paul and Timothy. Paul is the author of the letter. Timothy probably was his secretary, one of his co-workers. Now, this is the Paul you know as the apostle. He saw the risen Jesus. This is Paul who was the great missionary, the great church planter. We learn a bit about Paul's backstory in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to a place called Damascus. He's traveling at the time. He's traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians. He was a hater of God's people. And on that road, he has a dramatic experience and it's a drastic change in his life. He meets the risen Jesus. He meets the risen Jesus. He's converted and he's commissioned to go out and to preach the gospel, the good news of this risen Jesus, to the entire world. And so Paul, the murderer, becomes Paul the missionary. Paul, the persecutor of of Christians and Christianity, becomes Paul, the church planter, the pastor, the preacher. And as he goes out preaching here, there, and everywhere, he himself is persecuted. In fact, on numerous occasions, Paul was put in prison. He was put in prison. Can you imagine it? Being stuck in a jail cell or under house arrest somewhere, all because you were taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, because you were sharing the love of Jesus with others? That was Paul's life. It would have been so easy for Paul to quit in times like that, right? I mean, surely he must have been frustrated as he sat in a prison cell, as he sat under house arrest, 
But Paul was not the type to throw in the towel. He was all kinds of stubborn in a good way. When Paul was stuck in prison, he couldn't travel to preach the gospel anymore, but he could write letters. He could write letters. Four of Paul's letters contained in the New Testament were written from prison. We know these as the captivity epistles. Colossians is one of those letters. We wouldn't have the letter of Colossians today if Paul had been a throw-in-the-towel kind of guy. There must have been days when he wanted to quit. There must have been a part of him, as he went through these trials and tribulations, a part of him that said, I can't go on. But there was another part of him that said, I can't give up. I can't give up. He was driven by this Christ who had come to him. He was committed to taking the gospel to the nations. And so he didn't quit. Believer, listen to me. You still have work to do. Whatever your age, whatever the status of your health, you might have to get creative like Paul did. He couldn't travel anymore, but he could write letters. He could pray, as we'll see in this passage. God is not done with you. Don't you quit. Some of Paul's best ministry was done during times of adversity. Believer, some of your best ministry will be done during times of adversity. Don't waste your adversity. Use it to share the gospel with others, just as Paul did. Now, that's the author, the Apostle Paul. What about the original recipients? Well, Paul tells us that he's writing to the saints, the believers, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, who were located in this city called Colossae. Colossae was a peripheral city. Nobody really focused on it. Located in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. This is not a church that Paul knew personally. He had not started this church a man named Epaphras, a co-worker of Paul's, who's mentioned later in this passage, is the one who planted the church in Colossae. Epaphras traveled there, got the church started, preached the gospel, and then at some point later, Epaphras traveled back to Paul, bringing bad news of some things that were happening in Colossae. What was this bad news? Well, though the church was being committed to the gospel, as we'll see, a band of false teachers had gained a hearing in the city. Later in chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about these false teachers and their philosophy and empty deceit. And he warns the believers not to be taken captive by this philosophy. So we're going to refer to these false teachers as the philosophers. Sounds like they could be in a, a villain in like a Mission Impossible movie, right? You get the syndicate, the philosophers. We don't know a whole lot about them. They're kind of mysterious. But we know that they're trouble. We know that they're trouble. Paul says to the church, there are people in your midst who are trying to take you captive, to make you their prisoners, prisoners to their deceptive ideas. Don't fall for it. And we'll get into some of the specifics of what these philosophers were teaching as we go through the letter together. But in general, as best we can tell, it doesn't seem that they were calling the Christians to reject or to abandon Jesus. That wasn't their message. Their message was, Jesus is good. You need a little Jesus in your life, but Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus something else. You need Jesus plus 
magic. You need Jesus plus some mystical experience. Jesus plus extreme self-discipline. Jesus alone is not enough. You need the next, the newest thing. See, these philosophers were teaching that Jesus was just one of many options on the spiritual buffet. Go through the line with your plate. Put a little Jesus on there, of course. Nothing wrong with that. But you need lots of other stuff. You need to try a little of this. You need to try a little of that. Work for them over there. Jesus alone is not enough. Paul writes this letter to correct that way of thinking. Paul writes this letter to show them and to show us that Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus is not just one option on the spiritual buffet. He is preeminent. He's the Lord of all creation. He's supreme. He's sufficient. He's all you need. See, the gospel can be perverted. It can be polluted by addition just as much as by subtraction. We must not take anything away from the gospel. We must not add anything to it. That was the danger in Colossae. It's called syncretism. Syncretism. Perhaps you know this word. Perhaps not. Syncretism simply stated is lots of religious ideas Lots of practices from a variety of sources all mixed together. Just this cocktail of religions. That's what was happening in Colossae. And Paul writes to correct it, to remind the church, no, Jesus is all you need. Because Jesus is Lord. So there's a bit about what was happening in this ancient city in the first century that triggers this letter, causes Paul to respond. Now, that's the first part. Secondly, here in chapter 1, we're going to learn something about the Colossians' reputation. Yes, there were these false teachers. Yes, there were bad things happening. But on the whole, these believers were seeking to follow Christ. We know that because of what Paul says here. Look at verses 3 to 5. He goes on, We, Paul and Timothy, his secretary who's with him, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So here's their reputation. Here's what Paul has heard about them through Epaphras, who's traveled to Paul in prison. He's heard that the Colossians are people of faith, people of love, and people of hope. They have the reputation that all Christians ought to have. Let's think just for a moment about each of these words and how the three fit together. First, they're people of faith. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We know you're believers. Sinful people then in the first century and sinful people now are saved by grace through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that makes it sound like it's very easy to find salvation, doesn't it? And it is. It is. You just need faith. But you must understand what true faith, what saving faith is. It's more than mental assent. It's more 
than mental assent. Let me try to help you get the picture. I believe that there is a place called the Grand Canyon. I haven't been there myself, but I know people who have, and I've seen pictures of it. I have good reasons to believe that there is a place called the Grand Canyon. But I don't believe in the way that some of you do because you've been there. You've experienced it. You've encountered it. You've been moved by it. You've seen its greatness, its vastness. Inwardly, you've been stirred by that. On the one hand, afraid to go too close because of the depth of it. And on the other hand, eager to explore it. So you've encountered the Grand Canyon in a way that I haven't. Mentally, I assent to the existence of this place called the Grand Canyon. But I haven't been moved in the way you have. Faith, true faith, saving faith, is more than mental assent. Yes, it's cognitive. Yes, it involves the mind, but it's also affective. It involves the heart, the desires. And it's behavioral. It affects our actions. It's more than just believing with the head. It involves the heart, the hands, the feet, all of us. Which leads to what Paul says next about the Colossians. They're people of faith and people of love. Their faith is visible. You can see it. What does it look like? It looks like tangible acts of love for the family of God, for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, they're people of hope. And notice that in verse 5, Paul says that it's because of the hope. This love that they have is because of their hope. In other words, the love comes from the hope. It flows out of the hope. How does that work? They believe in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and what that means for their future. One day they too will be raised. And so this future hope of resurrection based on the past resurrection of Jesus affects everything about their present. It makes them people of love here and now. This is their reputation. This is what the Colossian Christians were most known for. Now what about us? We can't read a passage like this, speaking of reputation, without pausing to consider our own reputation, collectively as a church and individually. What about you? What about us as a church? Faith Church was planted in 1960. That means we can say to all of these new people who are coming into Seminole, we can say, this is our neighborhood. This is our neighborhood. Welcome to it. We're here to serve you, to love you. That's the type of reputation we want to have here in our community. Now, what about you individually? What's your reputation? You have neighbors. You have coworkers. You have classmates. What do they think about you? What word would they use to describe you? This past week, I started teaching some Bible theology classes at Covenant Academy just a few days a week to middle schoolers and high schoolers. I don't know most of these students, so we did a little icebreaker, lightning round game to kind of get to know each other. And one of the questions I asked the students was, what is one word that no one would ever use to describe you? What is one word no one would ever use to describe you? And one girl in the class blurts out, normal. 
she's exactly right. No one should ever use the word normal to describe us as Christians. They should say that's an abnormal love. How can they possibly love people that way? No, we don't want to be normal. What's your reputation, I wonder? Paul goes on. He sums up the reputation of the Colossians. They're people of faith, love, and hope. Why? Because they're people of the gospel. That's what he says next here. Of this, of this hope, you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. How is it that the Colossians are known for such love, such hope? Because the gospel has worked its way deep down into their hearts and it's showing up in their lives. It's the only way any of us can be changed. The power of God's word, the power of the good news. Colossae was a learning and a loving community. This we know. And that brings us to the final part of the passage. That's their reputation. At the end of this passage, Paul is going to transition from here's what I know about you to here's what I'm praying for you. The final part, we get to hear Paul's prayer. Now just think about that for a minute. This is the Apostle Paul himself. You get to hear his prayer. And what he prays for these early believers is what God desires for all of his people. So pay attention to this part. Here's Paul's prayer of intercession, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we, he and Timothy, heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what they're praying. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the first thing Paul prays is that they and we will know the will of the Lord. We'll know the will of the Lord. And the way we know the will of the Lord is by knowing God's Word. This is His revealed will for our lives. Or we could say it like this. Scripture is the script for your life's performance. Scripture is the script for your life's performance. In Scripture, we discover God, our Creator, author of the story. We discover God's plan for the world and our role within that story. In this script, we have all sorts of clear directives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are clear directives. We know what to do. But what about all those little bits of life where we don't have a chapter and verse to turn to? What about all those questions like, in which school should I enroll my child? Should I be in a relationship with this person? We don't have a chapter and a verse for those. But still, the better you know the script of Scripture the better prepared you will be to answer questions like that. See, the better an actor knows the script, the better an actor knows the script, 
the more prepared he or she will be to improvise faithfully. And so that's what you'll be able to do. When you know the story of this script, when you know who God is and his plan for the world, then you will be ready to improvise faithfully. Even when questions arise that you don't have a clear chapter and verse to turn to, you can say, I know this to be true about God, and I know this to be true about God's plan for the world and for my life, and therefore I conclude this school over here would be the far better one for my family. Therefore, I conclude I should not be in a relationship with this person. When you know the script, you'll be able to improvise faithfully. You'll know the will of God for your life. That's the first thing Paul prays for the Colossians and for us. But he continues. From the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as or so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So Paul prays first that you will know the Lord's will. And then he prays secondly, so that you will go the Lord's way. He doesn't want you simply, merely to be filled with knowledge. Knowledge is not stacked, stored, shelved. It's lived out. It's applied in every situation of life in which we find ourselves. He wants us to walk worthily. Now, what does that mean? To walk worthily is to walk fittingly. It's to live like who you are. A child of God, a follower of the risen Lord. And Paul goes on at the end of the passage here to flesh out what that means to walk worthily of the Lord. What, is it, what does the worthy life look like? Notice here the four ING words, these four participles. This tells us what it looks like to live worthily of the Lord. First, the worthy life, walking worthily, it means that you're fruitful. It means that you're fruitful, bearing fruit in every good work. A life of good works is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, that the gospel has indeed worked itself deep down into your heart. If there are no good works in your life, then you ought to examine yourself. Do I really have true and saving faith? Because if you're walking worthily of the Lord, you'll be fruitful. You'll be fruitful. Secondly, he says, increasing in the knowledge of God. So walking worthily means you'll be knowledgeable. You'll grow. You'll have an ever-deepening knowledge or understanding of who God is. And let me show you the way that works. The better you know God, the bigger God will seem to you. The clearer His grace and His power will be. And so the more desire you'll have to serve Him. There's a great line in the fourth, I think it's the fourth Narnia book, Prince Caspian, where Lucy, the young girl, is reunited with Aslan, the great lion who's the Christ figure in the story. And when they're first reunited, Lucy makes a comment about how much Aslan has grown since she last saw him. And Aslan responds, Lucy, I am not any older, nor am I any bigger than when last we met. But Lucy, 
Every year you grow, I will seem bigger. You see, that's how it works. Every year you grow in your knowledge of God, God will seem bigger, more glorious, more powerful. And so you'll have a deeper desire to serve Him in all things. To walk worthily means to be knowledgeable, to grow in knowledge. Third, it means to be powerful. Look at that in verse 11, being strengthened with all power, not our own power, but according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy is to have the power of God Himself, the Holy Spirit within us, working, giving us the strength we need to endure the difficulties of life, the trials, the tribulations that surely will come our way. And not just to endure, but to endure with joy, Paul says. So to walk worthily is to be fruitful, knowledgeable, powerful, and one more, thankful. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, if you're walking a worthy life, one of the ways you'll know it is that you're grateful. You're grateful for all that God has done for you just comes oozing out of you. And what is it that God has done? He's delivered us. He's redeemed us. Now, in the first century, Paul's first audience, when they heard these words, deliverance, redemption, immediately, they would have thought of the Exodus story in the Old Testament. In the ancient world, the word redemption, it had to do with the freeing, the emancipation of a slave. God's people in the Old Testament were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt until God set them free from the domain, from the reign of the Pharaoh. In the ultimate act of deliverance, in the ultimate act of deliverance, God sent His Son, Jesus, the preeminent one, the supreme one, to set us free. To deliver us from the domain of darkness, from the dark Lord, from the reign of sin, from the penalty of death. Believer, do you understand what that means? You have been set free. The chains have been broken. You're no longer a slave to that sin. You have a new king. You belong to Jesus now. Live that way. Notice one final thing here. We'll end with this. Verse 12, Paul talks about giving thanks to the Father because the Father is the one who has qualified us to share in this inheritance. Now, that's a really interesting way of putting it, I think, because normally when we talk about qualifying for something, the reference is to something that we've studied for we've pursued, we've passed, we've attained, we've accomplished for ourselves, right? Many years ago, when I was on staff in another church, the church owned a number of buses. And so the entire pastoral staff got our CDLs, commercial driver's license, so that we could drive those buses. To this day, when Jamie and I are driving down the road, we're having a minor driving dispute 
Never happens in your family, I'm sure. I have a standard line, and my standard line is, there is only one highly qualified driver in this car, and therefore, we will be taking the counsel of the highly qualified driver. Now, that would work, except, except, Jamie knows that my CDL expired long ago. And so she retorts immediately, you haven't been highly qualified for a long time. <laughs> Isn't it great news that God himself has qualified us for the inheritance of eternal life? It never expires. There's nothing you did to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. Jesus accomplished it all for good and all. You are qualified. This inheritance of eternal life is yours. So be grateful, believer. Be grateful. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for Jesus, the preeminent one, the supreme Lord of all. As we begin this several month study of Colossians and Philemon. God, I pray that you will work that singular truth deep down into our hearts, that whatever we are facing now, whatever we might face in the future, if we have Jesus, or more accurately, if Jesus has us, then we have all that we will ever need. Because Jesus, you are supreme. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.